Welcome to Wine Time with the Wine Swine, episode number two. Uh, In this episode, I'm going to be talking about a wine tasting that I was invited to and um, the Court of Master Sommeliers and uh, wine expertise as a business. Um, I'm going to go into a little bit of history on the uh, Czech wine side of things. Um, and then I'm going to tell you about, uh, one of my favorite producers, Dobrovinice, who come from, uh, a specific subregion in the Moravia area of the Czech Republic. So I hope you enjoy part one talking about the Czech wine tasting and specifically about the Court of Master Sommeliers and the financialization of wine. When I showed up at the invite-only industry wine tasting, we were all handed some printouts, standardized test forms about red and white wine. Our host explained that we were going to participate in a tradition of the Court of Master Sommeliers. A blind taste testing with the intention of picking out the grape varietal, country of origin, and approximate vintage, or year. Attendees who had not played this chest-puffing game before were furnished with another printout with the allowed-slash-expected nomenclature which, with which you were meant to evaluate, describe, and deduce the answers. Before I explain why I think this kind of proposition is a stupidity visited upon an otherwise enjoyable activity, let me tell you that both of the wines varietals that we were presented were not included in the test sheets, and one of the countries of origin was also missing. Oops! Basically making, you know, it kind of uh, rigged. The Court of Master Sommeliers is a business. Sommelier schooling is a big business, in fact. It costs 8,000 euros or something like that to take the master's master of wine test. It has direct financial ties to the other parts of the wine industry and a lot of the philosophy behind it, the hard, fast rules of being a sommelier or of wine writ large, really just reflections of what will most benefit the industry or big industry players, especially those who are at the top of the financial hierarchy. The late 70s, early 80s brought the financialization of wine, creation of an international speculative market, and the establishment of particular tastes, styles, or processes for wine as a very dominant, including the 100-point rating system featured in Wine Spectator, or as I call it, Wine Speculator, whose main critic was also the editor and himself a big-time speculator. These things also became how wine professionals were taught as well. The magazines featured psalms who were conservatively consistent with the ideas. The schools and experts claimed it had always been this way and was tradition. But that's kind of horseshit. These changes brought stricter standardized flavors for grape varietals, for territories, even to some degree for entire countries. Uh, If you followed the party line, you could sell more wine or wine for more money. If you were lucky enough to be in an important geographical denomination, you suddenly had a big uptick in demand. Then larger producers or non-wine companies bought out smaller ones and trashed the soil in places like Bordeaux. Then trying to produce huge amounts of a quality Bordeaux, read what a couple people said it should taste like, this was the introduction of 
like tobacco as a hype flavor, for instance. Um, and then there was an explosion also in the earlier sulfite use, usage, aka less actual fermentation and what whatever technological advancement might produce what you were supposed to be getting out of your field. So basically, you know, what I'm saying is like they created flavors, then they said, okay, now all the wines need to taste like that. Yes, sometimes the oak Chardonnay you are drinking never touched oak. There's a lot of things you can use to make it taste that way. Um, and let me answer your question before you even ask. No, you do not have to tell the consumer. The other big critic, besides the uh, one who was the publisher of Wine Spectator, uh, is a guy who was named Michael Jackson. He is deceased uh, and not much... I feel like saying about him, except for that he was also considered the world's expert on beer and whiskeys. He smoked cigars all the time. Uh, he used to be a frequent guest on Conan O'Brien when I was pretty young. He looked pretty unhealthy, but he was also really fun. Um, and I wonder if seeing him was at all formative on me subconsciously, um, because he was totally enjoying his life, basically drinking and smoking on TV and making jokes about, um, you know, being wasted. Uh, he was the other person whose personal tastes became strict rules about flavors. Um, professionals argue about the level of actual, in, actual interventions in conventional industrial wine, um, but it is a fact that there are about 40 ingredients that could be in the wine without anyone telling you when it comes to conventional wine. Uh, this is something we discussed very minorly in episode one of um, the podcast, but uh, this is a main thing that will come up a lot over and over again. You just cannot get a consistent wine that tastes the same in every bottle and every year like it's supposedly supposed to in a very large amount without adding stuff, basically. Uh, the biggest one is sugar because our palates automatically like sugar. Um, but there's a huge amount of other ones. And um, what kind of things end up in your wine kind of depends on what kind of wines you end up buying. Um, the test pages that we got reflect this. The standardization of flavors, the coloration descriptors, and the focus on clarity, and all of the other things that... Um, are used in, in the classic Corps de Master Sommelier's describing. Don't get me wrong, a lot of the things that are part of this could be important or useful to know. Um, you know, I do not think that uh, all of this stuff is bad, but um, it's about the standardization that's the problem. I'll probably get into those later. The tests also play into an extremely unhealthy culture in gastronomy that teaches people to crush others as competition. Sure, people in the industry party together a lot, but they're also kind of obsessed about being better than colleagues and talk an incredible amount of shit about each other behind each other's backs. So this test we were taking feeds into both of these awful tendencies, which is totally their intention. Uh, the test is good for business. The more you standardize your experts, the more wine you can sell when they all agree on what you're supposed to be doing and you're making it the right way. 
if a wine worker doesn't feel comfortable doing one of these games, then they go and pay for the W set or they start on one of the more expensive courses if they can. It's a way to help toe the party line. Pattern recognition is not knowledge or insight. This is kind of the most important thing I'm trying to convey. If you learn about wine by learning about the people that made it and their opinions and philosophies on how to do that, you'll grok the experience of drinking it more than by memorizing the eight noble grapes, which is an incredibly stupid concept that reduces biodiversity by slowly eliminating endemic varietals um, and what these members of nobility supposedly always taste like. Um, as an example of how this approach is not factual is the aforementioned Chardonnay, the oak Chardonnay, I said. Um, this grape can have like the widest express expression of flavors, texture, and intensity based on where, how, when, with or without what, how, maybe even why, though I think that is more covered in the how, um, it was grown and then later vinified. Um, do grapes have some inherent characteristics? Sure. But does producing to reflect the unique circumstances change those wildly due to complex chemistry? Thankfully, yes. That is a good thing. All right. So, part two. Here's some background on the Czech Republic with regards to wine, um, where I completely butcher uh, some of the names of places and I misread my notes a few times. I had already been planning on writing about Czech wine before I got invited to the industry tasting that would exclusively feature them. Well, I was going to write generally about Czech, Slovene, and Slovak wines, possibly specifically about Moravia and the Czech Republic. Maybe a focus even more specifically about Dobrovinice, which is a very special winemaker that I like very much. I think I'll probably talk about them later in this podcast. Um... Obviously, the start of the tasting and being invited to it made me sort of rethink uh, how I would write about this stuff. Um, now I kind of think, you know, there's a better way to, to write about Czech wine. Uh, so Czech wine is basically only grown in two geographical or four geographical areas, two, geograph two geographical areas. Bohemia and Moravia. Bohemia has a very small amount of production for plenty of reasons, and almost none of it makes it out of the country. So let's talk about Bohemia. Bohemia is divided into four subregions. Uh, Mikulov is known for producing minerality because of the limestone. It is also small. Slovako, which borders Slovakia, has sometimes clumpy light soil with some clay, as most of the growing area is bordering on um, river valleys. There's mostly German varietals um, and a little bit more of a conventional style of winemaking. Um, Velkopavlovico uh, oh produces reds. <laughs> the largest region, its soil varies widely covering all the bases, but always tends to be very magnesium rich. Uh, this seems to help with growing red, purple, and black varietals of grape. Um, I'm pretty sure they do most of the Cabernet Moravia, which is a local hybrid grape, which was created by either Louis the fifth or fourth, and he brought Cab Franc over there, and then they mixed it with a local one that's called 
Znojemsko? Znojemsko? is where all the good stuff is. Oh, wait, no. Sorry, no. Sorry. Uh, Cab, the Cab Franc is what got brought over and got mixed with a Moravian grape. That's not Znojemsko. Znojemsko is what, where all of the good stuff is in Moravia. Or at least a lot of it. A lot of the stuff that I really like. Um, stony gravel, clay, and a combo of sun and not too hot. Uh, it borders Austria and is the westernmost part of Moravia. Have you heard of Milan Nesterek? The kings of keeping it fresh? They're from there. Korab, uh, which are some pretty incredibly wild and unpredictable wines, and they do a lot of pet nuts that kind of taste like more complex non-sparkling wines, but that have been made somehow naturally sparking, sparkling. And then uh, Yaroslav Osichka, who is basically the godfather or oldest guy of um, Czech natural wine, is also in this area. I particularly would like to learn from him. Um, and guess what? Dobrovinice is also in this region. Here's part three, uh, where I'll just be talking about Dobrovinice specifically, um, which is one of my favorite winemakers from Moravia. So let's talk about Dobrovinice. Um, basically, I first had the Dobrovinice Creme de Pinot Noir from 2012, I think. Uh, it was incredible. I had been lucky enough to be tasting a lot of new wines, quite often things that caught my attention. I'd started working in wine. That was my in. But this is one that stood out in this uh, lucky part of my life. The malolactic fermentation added a distinct creaminess and texture that you often hear about in champagnes. But the complex three-dimensional, very present flavor was incredibly electric on the tongue. That's the acidity. The reduced and simplistic, elegant style of bubbly was totally out the window. This was brash and incredibly juicy. Still greatly acidic, with a yeastiness I had never tasted as such a major part of the palate. Um, there was like pomelo fighting with nectarine, but there was also other guests at the party besides the fruits, and I loved it. And at the time, it was incredibly affordable. Um, the 2012... Uh, the 2012 ran out quick, but the Creme de Pinot 2013 was immediately there. We sold it constantly at Wild Things, the bar that I worked at, and I relished being able to turn people onto it. A lot of people started buying it to take home or stopping by to get a bottle with the discount on to-go purchases. I introduced a lot of DJs to natural wine, and I usually got them hooked with this wine specifically. After a night of hanging out at the bar with me playing a series of my, uh, my favorites, Axel Bowman came directly from the airport the next time he played in Berlin and got that bottle of wine. To, he grabbed a bottle of the Creme de Pinot and then got a light juicy rosado to follow up in whatever DJ booth he was in that night. Eventually that ran out though too and quicker than any of us expected. I also had not realized that these took a lot longer to be ready for release. Um, I guess this was in 2015. So we're talking about a minimum of two years until they get to the table. In 2014, there was the creme de vin. I only got to taste it once. It was a mix of three grapes and they weren't really doing it for me. 
I think it didn't get picked up by our dealer, Jeff, who I hope to eventually um, have as an interview subject on the podcast. But this one was a an exception for this line of Dobrovinice. It was a bad harvest, let's say. Um, Jeff, who I mentioned before, said the creme de pinot wasn't probably ever coming back. It hadn't really worked out properly anymore, and there would be other options. He was going soon to Czech Republic to check them out. The first one that came out of these new options was the creme de rosé 2015, if my memory serves correctly. It arrived in the summer, perfectly timed, because it was a sparkling... Uh, rosé version of that original creme de Pinot Noir. Um, you It added a bit more berry to the style and maybe a little bit less electricity, um, but it kept how satisfying textural and just how delicious it was while producing giant crystals of tartaric acid and a lot less of, well, no, not a lot less of the yeasty sediment, but a lot different of the yeasty sediment. Um a lot of people really liked it even better than the creme de Pinot Noir because it was a little bit less challenging, maybe. It was great, though. Um, and it was the second option when it hadn't worked out uh, in the first place with the Pinot Noir. Um, and it, you know, it was a super exciting summer thing. My favorite thing about this one was that the that yeast I mentioned at the bottom meant that the color would change from the first glass to the last glass. Like the first glass was a ruby red grapefruit juice. And then the bottom glass was like a dark lavender. Sometimes that last glass was even like downright purple. Um, Dobrovenice is not good if you're trying to cure your thrush. Um because the yeast content is pretty high. Around the same time, as I recall, later in the year, was the debut of the Creme de Parc National. Um, it's the same style. It's also ancestral method or, or pet knot, but the grape is Muller Torgau. This changes the whole vibe. Now it's peach fuzzy, and the yeast tastes incorporated instead of like its own chapter. This could work for people who wanted something toothy and plump, maybe even people who like their wines with more residual sugar. It was drifting a bit further away from what that original brain-busting creme de pinot was. Um, but it still was really good. And there's one more around two, but not too many bottles. It was a different one in a different kind of bottle. Um, and the different bottle, I think, made me think it was made with dessert wine grapes. I didn't save a label from this, unfortunately, so I don't really remember what it was. Um, maybe somebody can tell me if, they, if they're out there in Wineland. Uh, but it was a little bit more opaque. It was a very good sort of after-dinner version. Creme de whatever it was. Let's call it creme de after-dinner mint. There was bubbles. There was low residual sh sugar. And, uh, you know, it's a dessert grape ancestral method pet knot. I'm not, I'm, I wouldn't complain about it. Um, creme de Trio 2016 was the new version of the idea of the creme de van. It worked a lot better. The mixed three grapes were approaching the old creme de Pinot, but because of each of the grapes 
having a very strong profile, it made the process of tasting it in your mouth last longer than the creme de pinot did. So, you know, um, a long finish. And it was more complex, like kind of almost going in stages. This was made out of Pinot, Muller, Torgau, and I believe Riesling. Though it could have also been Welsh Riesling, which um, is a little bit more toothy, juicy, or... Um, yeah, toothy or juicy is a good way to say it. Round. Um, by now, I'm sure you're getting bored of descriptions of uh, of the Dobrovinice cremes. Um, but, you know, I'm trying to describe catching lightning in a bottle. The only big change after 2016 was the introduction of the creme de cambrium in 2018, which was like a bit more flavorful cremant, although still done in an ancestral method style. Um, and it was affordable. They did some creme de parc national in there every once in a while. Um, and then uh, I got very, very lucky. Uh, and Jeff mentioned to me that they re released a 2016 vintage um, that had been aging in their cellars for five years. Um, I bought a bottle. Uh, he told me that it was a uh, reductive wine. What reductive means is that uh, it is not kept away from oxygen. Um, oxygen is able to get into the wine, whether that's because it's in um, barrels or because it's in sort of more open style tanks. Uh, why it's called reductive is because some of the wine will evaporate over time. Um, and uh, reductive winemaking can sometimes smooth out flavors, but also sometimes make things way more intense or difficult even. Um, I was told that this 2016 was smoky and it was a wine that you don't want to spring on the unprepared. Um, you know, something that sounds like it would be the chance to experience the original creme de Pinot Noir as a brain-busting, super wild, uh, whack job wine that you'll talk about forever. Um, I will talk about this in a second uh, when I fi finally had this because uh, I have a bottle here and I'm going to drink it and describe it. Um, but let's just say now you should pick something up of Dobrovinice if you find it. They're available at Rocket Wine in Berlin. They have specific distributors in New York, London, Tokyo, Paris, Stockholm, Vienna, Seoul, Singapore, and Canada, but only in Montreal. So, um... You are listening to a podcast under the La Mission Radio umbrella. You can find us and support us at patreon.com slash joinpablo. That's patreon.com, J-O-I-N-P-A-B-L-O. Early access for patrons, plus special bonus episodes, and a whole lot more as we did not start as a podcast Patreon. Come and see us. Part four, questions and responses from patrons. So 
here's a new idea. I was able to send um, the small version that uh, you just heard to a number of the patrons who are subscribed um, at uh, higher levels and asked them if they had any questions um, that came up. So I'm going to play you now a bunch of um, answers. A lot of these are related to the things that you just heard. Uh, some of them, though, are a little bit more general. And in the future, if you become a patron on the Patreon, you can, too, ask questions about the um, draft of the podcast and have those answered. The first one uh, was a question from somebody who asked if uh, malolactic fermentation, which I mentioned multiple times in the um, descriptions of the creme de uh, wines, was related to what kind of vessel it was fermented in. The answer to that is no, because malolactic fermentation is actually um, something that happens every time you make wine. Uh, it's a process in winemaking that um, converts basically malic acid, which is much more uh, sour or tart or acidic, into a softer version of that acid, which is lactic acid. Um, uh, very often when I'm mentioning it, I'm talking about um, the um, sort of feeling that you often get on, on your tongue of sort of a buttery or um, milky or buttermilky kind of um, film that stays on your tongue. That's very often a characteristic of um, very forward expressed um, lactic acid because that is also um, present, of course, in all of the um, lactose-containing um, products, such as butter or milk, etc. So, next question. Do you find any of the WSET or Master SOM programs beneficial? Oh, you know what? Um, I'm going to go with one of the other questions first. Uh, somebody asked me, what is the W set that wine workers pay to to avoid the games? Um, well, W set stands for Wine and Spirit Education Trust. It's a company, and they have classes that um, uh, span basically three levels, uh, sort of four, um, to teach people who work in the industry um, important stuff about wine and um, spirits. Um the question of do I find the WSET or the Master Sum programs beneficial? Um, if you are working in the industry and you do not have a basic understanding of uh, wine stuff, of course these are going to the WSET especially can be very beneficial to give somebody a leg up to understand what they're um, selling slash um, you know offering to people. Um, my experience with the WSET personally is that um, they are selling one very particular view of wine. And a lot of that is this sort of dominant um, hegemonic idea within the first um, level of the W set. They talk a lot about the eight varieties of the eight noble varieties of grape, um, uh, which is a concept that sort of makes absolutely no sense. It's basically just saying, uh, picking these particular grapes as more important or better than other ones. And that's very much had to do with who 
um, was growing those grapes at the time that these became uh, dominant ideas and who could make more money out of them. Um, the WSET and Master Som programs both, uh, I mean, Master Som program is exclusively for people who want to do this for a living for the rest of their life. Um, it costs a ridiculous amount of money. Uh, it's extremely intense. They have a very, very, very limited amount of people that actually um, pass in the end. A lot of people don't pass on the first time, which means they have to get another restaurant group or somebody else to pay for them to do it. These are beneficial if all you're interested in is... Um, the sales of wine. You do gain a lot of knowledge, but all of this knowledge could also be gained on your own, which um, leads to the next uh, questions, which are, how have you gained knowledge? What constitutes knowledge of grapes and wine? Um, personally, I was very lucky to um, both work at a place that was uh, dedicated to um, low intervention or natural wines and also have several very close friends who um, taught me stuff and who also were um, interested in talking about this kind of thing all the time. Uh, and I, I, I as well was very, very into just like learning about stuff. Um, I have read books. I have uh, looked online. Um, uh, I learned probably the most, though, by drinking wines. And that is kind of the um, next two questions are how would I suggest others advance their knowledge and does it require buying wine? Um, yeah, I mean, the only way to really learn stuff, I think, quite well is from experience. And so um, it means kind of actively um, trying wines and um, making your own judgments about them. And um, the more you try different wines and the more you learn about those wines as you try them, the better you understand uh, the winemaking process, how terroir and the way wines are vinified affect them, um, all of the different things that um, I would con say constitute knowledge. Um, Really, the, the truth is um, a lot of the stuff is subjective um, and the amount of stuff that isn't subjective um, is, uh, is stuff that anybody could learn putting some effort in in a, in a year or two of reading. Um, uh, the next question from the same person is, are tasting notes subjective? And the answer is, of course they are. Um, there are specific chemicals that have specific expressions, flavor expressions, um, but those chemicals that are created during the vinification of wine also are interpreted differently by different people's palates. So while somebody might taste more of a mango, another person might taste more of a passion fruit or a pineapple or whatever. And uh, all of these things are... Um, not uh, measurable, the, the way you particularly taste something. Um, I also believe that the tasting notes should actually be reflective more of your experience with the wine than a um, set idea of how something does or does not taste. Because I have absolutely found that different people... Um, which is not always based on their training or their experience or their understanding, uh, have like much more 
detailed or less detailed or much more um, subtle or less subtle uh, versions of what um, wines actually taste like. Uh, and and oddly enough, some of the people who I know who have the most sensitive and kind of incredible palates are people who um, generally don't drink a huge wide variety of wines, but have in the past. And um, they know what they like, uh, but like, um, and don't generally drink much, much else, but when given the opportunity to try things that are completely out of their normal um, uh, buying habits, they are sparklingly incredible at, at finding flavors that most people don't uh, notice and often have um, surprised me. And when somebody says something to you about how something tastes, that will psychologically affect whether or not you're able to taste it too. Um, which, which is another reason that I think it should have to do with personal experience as opposed to a specific set of uh, descriptors. Uh, the next question is, do I see an influx of the master court of sommeliers now hopping onto the natural wine train and trying to inject their conventional teachings onto these kinds of wines? And if so, does that hold any merit? Uh, I have to be honest, I'm not really connected to or um, up on most of what's going on in that world because it doesn't really interest me and I don't really feel the need to be like uh angry or 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 uh or have like some kind of uh um frustration or disgust at that world by following it um i am sure considering how much there is um a sort of widening of the world who is interested in these wines and a widening of the amount of people making them that uh, natural wines are absolutely um, showing up uh, as a concept that is definitely in that world to some extent. I do know some people who have masters of wine who very specifically have said their belief is that the vast majority of the best of the best of the best wines are also low intervention and are not generally made in a conventional uh, style, but that they are also not wine makers or vineyards that um, that talk about that specifically or that uh, define themselves as natural winemakers or natural wines. Um, uh, there's quite a few um, winemakers who are using the same recipes that their great 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 grandparents did, and um, the only difference might be the amount of um, sulfiding that happens. And that's, I guess, the uh, big difference between these super fancy, nice, expensive, um, known to uh, master sommeliers kind of wines and the sort of newer, cheaper uh, or more or less expensive um, kind of exciting young people um, naturals or 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 uh, low intervention wines, um, it's it's very often the only difference um, process-wise is the amount of sulfiding. Um, not always, though. It, it really kind of depends on what wine you're talking about specifically. Um, as to the question if that holds any merit, uh, I guess, you know, um, this kind of plays into another question that somebody asked me, which was, um, tell me why I think that this 
game that we played at the beginning uh, was problematic. Um, and that's that, or, or why it is bad that um, everything becomes standardized. Well, basically, the thing is, if you make it so that everything is supposed to be one specific way, then you disallow the possibility for extremely exciting and um, outlying, unique, uh, special things that do not follow those particular rules. Standardization is almost always something that is only there to make the uh, market more effective, but does not have the effect of making quality higher or more interesting or better. Um, I do think that a lot of these, uh, or, or, or a decent amount of these standardized terms and things that people um, uh, use are helpful for people to learn how to talk about wine and very often if you are in a professional setting and you have to compare things with other people it is helpful to know these things but um, as a private person who uh, is enjoying wine um, going by these rules or, or guidelines or whatever uh, kind of doesn't make sense it's you should really be experiencing wine um, the way that you experience it and describing it the way that you feel it tastes. Uh, it, um, I'm very much more interested in experiential wine tasting as opposed to um, pure descriptive wine tasting. All right, let's move on to the next one. Um, how was Czech wine affected by these 80s and 90s market forces that I described? Were regions ignored, land, vineyard acquisitions changed, etc., etc.? Um, okay, well, first of all, the 80s and the 90s are very different because we're talking about a country that was not existing at the time. It was part of a larger country. Um, and uh, we're talking about pre-fall of um, the Soviet Union and uh, a time that it was behind the Iron Curtain and then the early years after the Iron Curtain. So I couldn't tell you what, I mean, absolutely there were no changes specifically in the 80s. And in the 90s, I believe things were just starting to um, go back to different uh, private people having uh control of different vineyards. But um, you'll hear actually in the next episode, episode three, when I uh, interview Sakrabetka, uh, um, some information about the history of um, Czech winemaking and how common it is for people normally in the winemaking regions, at least, to just make wine for their families or friends, etc. Um, so I'm going to kind of skip that one because the answer is there's no way to know unless we're reading books about Soviet winemaking. Um, what ingredients or processes do not have to be labeled? Okay. Uh, the, the person wrote might need a separate podcast for this. Yeah, this is something that is very complicated and um, would, if I did the extensive research, probably take up at least one podcast. Um, the two most common things that are added that are kind of damaging are massive amounts of sugar and, um, sulfiting. Um, and we talk about that in pretty much every episode, um, as to why those things are, are a little off and, um, and what, and, and how they affect it. But the, the truth is that, um, because most of these things are not labeled and this is basically everything, um, 
P.S. Like you only need to write that there are sulfites added. You don't even need to say how much of them. Um, that's the only thing you have to add to a wine bottle. And um, the wine industry has actually fought very, very, very strongly um, to keep uh, any any other labeling from happening. And not just the wine industry, the spirits industry as well. It's um, It's a sort of alcohol-wide industry thing that lobbies to make sure that um, they don't have to label because these are uh, proprietary ideas. They can be anything from actual um, chemical flavoring additives to um, things that are used to clarify wine to things that are used to make the wine um, change pH. I mean, there's huge, huge different possibilities, but these are also very secret things. So I can't tell you exactly which ones. Um, and it would take a lot longer than, uh, uh, one podcast. All right. Next question. What kinds of strict rules were created from this Michael Jackson's personal tastes? Um, okay. Well, uh, in a way, anything that you can say specifically defines how a grape supposedly tastes right now. Like if somebody says a Chardonnay is always like this or um, something from blah blah area is always like this or um, I enjoy the uh, the let's say heavy reds that have a stronger tannin expression that reminds me of sand and tobacco. All of those things pretty much exclusively come from the two people I was talking about. Um, Yes, there would have been some kind of um, standardized tasting notes previous to that, um, but the um, what created these these uh, international understandings of what specific things tasted like the speculative markets, basically. So, like um, making wine an international thing, the changes in the actual chemical revolution of how you could make wine, and um, and uh, yeah, the, the import-export and sort of bigger business thing, um, it's the financialization of wine that, that created these. And the uh, two critics that I talked about are one part of that, um, the um, uh, set buying and selling of, of rare wines is part of that, um, big companies that were buying smaller vineyards is part of that. It, it's a huge... Um, very complex thing and something that you will find did not just happen in wine. It happens. It happened generally almost in everything um, starting sort of in the 70s and reaching its heights from the 80s to the early 2000s. And um, that's because of the way um, sort of neoliberal policy changed the way all markets and stuff functioned around the world. Um, and so if you want to find out more about that, I would suggest listening to our other podcasts that are way more political in nature, but I can talk about this more sometime in a future podcast. Uh, next question, how much do or did all of these cremes cost? What's the range? Okay, so the reason that I didn't um, actually talk about the different prices is because the pricing can change very, very extremely from place to place. Um, and very often these wines were wines that I was able to purchase for something close to 
10 to 12 euros at the time, which I think is incredibly, incredibly low and um, wonderful. Uh, but most of these wines probably sell for about 20 euros in the European cities you will easily find them in. And then they go up from there. Um, very few of the wines that I ever will talk about on the podcast specifically um, cost above about 25 euros in Europe. Um, and when they do, I probably will mention that. What this means for U.S. listeners is... Um, very different depending on who the importer is, where it's coming from, what the taxes are on that and all that. So I can't really tell you the different prices, but I can tell you that um, hopefully if you find these available, they should not break the bank. Um, I was also asked to specifically um, talk about each different one for more time. I think I'm going to skip that because we already spent quite a bit on each of them, but maybe I will um, add just a little bit more on each one separately before putting out the public version. Um, and then the last question is, did the flavor descriptions listed on the sheet at the tasting match your previous experience with Czech wines? Okay, I think maybe... Um, the person who asked this might have uh, had a little bit of misunderstanding. For me, the uh, the sheet had nothing to do with Czech wine. The sheet was about us tasting two wines and seeing who could um, place the grape, the location, the year. Um, and um, I do not believe either of the wines were from the Czech Republic. Um, and uh, as I sort of was explaining before, I think the whole idea of all of these standard, standardized versions of what wine is supposed to taste like are kind of ludicrous and are very much um, based on conventional wine and on standardization and on sales and are not based on how a wine actually tastes or the experience you have with it. Um, that said, uh, some of the descriptors on these sheets are um, very basic stuff like uh, acidic or, you know, or, or, um, or balanced or um, sweet or whatever, th things like that. And of course, those things are um, notes that you can find in, in, in most any wines to uh, uh, some extent or, or, or lesser. And of course, that would relate to Czech wine or to wine from anywhere. Um, my experience with Czech wine is that Czech wine... Um, is very unique and has a lot of um, kind of vibrant expressions that you don't get in a lot of other places. But I also have a very specific and limited experience with Czech wines, which may be quite a lot more than your average person, but is way less than I would say would be needed to be an expert um, or even anywhere close. So that's um, the questions that I had so far. If any uh, listeners have um, more questions themselves, feel free to um, write a comment and I'll try to either answer it um, directly to you or we can put it in a future podcast. The next episode is uh, with Sarka Betka. Uh, thanks for listening. I have a lot more to say about Czech wine and uh, even have notes on the 50 wines that we had at the tasting that I described. Um, but uh, this is all 
basically a setup for the next podcast episode, which is an interview with um, Sarka Betka, uh, who is the uh, proprietor of Vino Factum, which is a importer in Berlin of Czech wines. And she is from the Czech Republic, from the area that I just talked about, and uh, has a really amazing relationship with both wine and with all of these winemakers. So um, look forward to the next episode, which we'll be talking to her. You are listening to a podcast under the La Mission Radio umbrella. You can find us and support us at patreon.com slash join Pablo. That's patreon.com, J-O-I-N-P-A-B-L-O. Early access for patrons, plus special bonus episodes, and a whole lot more as we did not start as a podcast Patreon. Come and see us. 